I don't know who needs to hear this, but we have just quietly released the first episode of our long-awaited audiobook adaption of Jane Austen's Persuasion. We've submitted it to all the usual streaming platforms, so go and search for it where you listen to podcasts to see it, to see it, to find it, to listen to it. I think that's the point. Podcasts, you don't use your eyes, you use your ears. Anyway, it's going to be available there soon, so you should go and find it um, and see if it's available yet. For more info about the podcast, visit our website, which is www.bnt.org.au. Chapter 25. After a week spent in professions of love and schemes of felicity, Mr. Collins was called from his amiable Charlotte by the arrival of Saturday. The pain of separation, however, might be alleviated on his side by preparations for the reception of his bride, as he had reason to hope that shortly after his return to Hertfordshire, the day would be fixed that was to make him the happiest of men. He took leave of his relations at Longbourn with as much solemnity as before, wished his fair cousins health and happiness again, and promised their father another letter of thanks. On the following Monday, Mrs. Bennet had the pleasure of receiving her brother and his wife, who came, as usual, to spend the Christmas at Longbourn. Mr. Gardiner was a sensible, gentlemanlike man, greatly superior to his sister, as well as by nature as education. The Netherfield ladies would have had difficulty in believing that a man who'd lived by trade and within view of his own warehouses could have been so well-bred and agreeable. Mrs. Gardiner, who was several years younger than Mrs. Bennet and Mrs. Phillips, was an amiable, intelligent, elegant woman and a great favourite with all her long-born nieces. Between the two eldest and herself especially, there subsisted a particular regard. They had frequently been staying with her in town. The first part of Mrs. Gardiner's business on her arrival was to distribute her presents and describe the newest fashions. When this was done, she had a less active part to play. It became her turn to listen. Mrs. Bennet had many grievances to relate and much to complain of. They had all been very ill-used since she last saw her sister. Two of her girls had been upon the point of marriage and after all, there was nothing in it. I do not blame Jane, for Jane would have got Mr. Bingley if she could. But Lizzie, oh, sister, it is very hard to think that she might have been Mr. Collins's wife by this time, had it not been for her own perverseness. He made her an offer in this very room, and she refused him. The consequence of it is that Lady Lucas will have a daughter married before I have, and that the Longbourn estate is just as much entailed as ever. The Lucases are very artful people indeed, sister. They are all for what they can get. I am sorry to say it of them, but so it is. It makes me very nervous and poorly to be thwarted so in my own family and to have neighbours who think of themselves before anybody else. However, your coming just at this time is the greatest of comforts, and I am very glad to hear what you tell us of long sleeves. Mrs Gardiner, to whom the chief of this news had been given before in the course of Jane and Elizabeth's correspondence with her, made her sister a slight answer, and, in compassion to her nieces, turned the conversation. 
When alone with Elizabeth afterwards, Mrs Gardner spoke more on the subject. It seems likely to have been a, a desirable match for Jane. I am sorry it went off. But these things happen so often. A young man such as you describe Mr Bingley so easily falls in love with a pretty girl for a few weeks. And when accident separates them, so easily forgets her that these sort of inconsistencies are very frequent. An excellent consolation in its way, but it will not do for us. We do not suffer by accident. It does not often happen that the interference of friends will persuade a young man of independent fortune to think no more of a girl whom he was violently in love with only a few days before. But, Lizzie, that expression of violently in love is so hackneyed, so doubtful, so indefinite, that it gives me very little idea. It is as often applied to feelings which arise from a half-hour's acquaintance as to a real strong attachment. Pray, how violent was Mr Bingley's love? Oh, my dearest aunt, I never saw a more promising inclination. He was growing quite inattentive to other people and wholly engrossed in Jane. Every time they met... It was more decided and remarkable. At his own ball, he offended two or three young ladies by not asking them to dance. And I spoke to him twice myself without receiving an answer. Could there be finer symptoms? Is not general incivility the very essence of love? Oh, yes. Of that kind of love which I suppose him to have felt. Poor Jane. I am sorry for her, because with her disposition she may not get over it immediately. It had better have happened to you, Lizzie. You would have laughed yourself out of it sooner. But do you think she would be prevailed upon to go back with us? Change of scene might be of service, and perhaps a little relief from home may be as useful as anything. Elizabeth was exceedingly pleased with this proposal, and felt persuaded of her sister's ready acquiescence. Oh, I hope that no consideration with regard to this young man will influence her. We live in so different a part of town. All our connections are so different. And as you well know, we go out so little that it is very improbable that they should meet at all, unless he really comes to see her. And that is quite impossible. For he is now in the custody of his friend, and Mr. Darcy would no more suffer him to call on Jane in such a part of London. My dear aunt, how could you think of it? Mr. Darcy may perhaps have heard of such a place as Gracechurch Street, but he would hardly think a month's ablution enough to cleanse him from its impurities were he once to enter it. And depend on it, Mr Bingley never stirs without him. So much the better. I hope they will not meet at all. But does not Jane correspond with his sister? She will not be able to help calling. She will drop the acquaintance entirely. But in spite of the certainty in which Elizabeth affected to place this point, as well as the still more interesting one of Bingley's being withheld from seeing Jane, she felt a solicitude on the subject which convinced her, on examination, that she did not consider it entirely hopeless. It was possible, and sometimes she thought it probable, that his affection might be reanimated, and the influence of his friends 
successfully combated by the more natural influence of Jane's attractions. Miss Bennet accepted her aunt's invitation with pleasure, and the Bingleys were no otherwise in her thoughts at the same time than as she hoped by Caroline's not living in the same house with her brother, she might occasionally spend a morning with her without any danger of seeing him. The gardeners stayed a week at Longbourn, and what with the Phillipses, the Lucases, and the officers, there was not a day without its engagement. Mrs. Bennet had so carefully provided for the entertainment of her brother and sister that they did not once sit down to a family dinner. When the engagement was for home, some of the officers always made part of it, of which officers Mr. Wickham was sure to be one, and on these occasions Mrs. Gardiner, rendered suspicious by Elizabeth's warm commendation, narrowly observed them both. Without supposing them, from what she saw, to be very seriously in love, their preference for each other was plain enough to make her a little uneasy, and she resolved to speak to Elizabeth on the subject before she left Hertfordshire, and represent to her the imprudence of encouraging such an attachment. To Mrs. Gardiner, Wickham had one means of affording pleasure, unconnected with his general powers. About ten or a dozen years ago, before her marriage, she had spent a considerable time in that very part of Derbyshire to which he belonged. They had, therefore, many acquaintances in common, and though Wickham had been little there since the death of Mr. Darcy's father, it was yet in his power to give her fresher intelligence of her former friends than she had been in the way of procuring. Mrs. Gardiner had seen Pemberley, and had known the late Mr. Darcy by character perfectly well. Here, consequently, was an inexhaustible subject of discourse. In comparing her recollection of Pemberley with the minute description which Wickham could give, and in bestowing her tribute of praise on the character of its late possessor, she was delighting both him and herself. On being made acquainted with the present Mr. Darcy's treatment of him, she tried to remember some of that gentleman's reputed disposition when quite a lad, which might agree with it, and was confident at last that she recollected having heard Mr. Fitzwilliam Darcy formally spoken of as a very proud, ill-natured boy. Chapter 26 Mrs. Gardiner's caution to Elizabeth was punctually and kindly given on the first favourable opportunity of speaking to her alone, after honestly telling her what she thought, she thus went on. You are too sensible a girl, Lizzie, to fall in love merely because you are warned against it. And therefore, I am not afraid of speaking openly. Seriously, I would have you be on your guard. Do not involve yourself, or endeavour to involve him, in an affection which the want of fortune would make so very imprudent. I have nothing to say against him. He is a most interesting young man. And if he had the fortune he ought to have, I should think you could do no better. But, as it is, you must not let your fancy run away with you. You have sense, and we all expect you to use it. Your father would depend on your resolution... And good conduct, I am sure. You must not disappoint your father. My dear aunt, this is being very serious indeed. Yes, and I hope to engage you to be serious likewise. Well, then, you need not be under any alarm. I will take care of myself, and of Mr Wickham too. 
He shall not be in love with me if I can prevent it. Elizabeth, you are not serious now. I beg your pardon. I will try again. At present, I am not in love with Mr Wickham. No, I certainly am not. But he is, beyond all comparison, the most agreeable man I ever saw. And if he becomes really attached to me, I believe it would be better that he should not. I see the imprudence of it. <sighs> that abominable, Mr Darcy. My father's opinion of me does me the greatest honour, and I should be miserable to forfeit it. My father, however, is partial to Mr Wickham. In short, my dear aunt, I should be very sorry to be the means of making any of you unhappy, but since we see every day that where there is affection, young people are seldom withheld by immediate want of fortune from entering into engagements with each other, how can I promise to be wiser than so many of my fellow creatures if I am tempted? Or how am I to even know that it would be wisdom to resist? All I can promise you, therefore, is not to be in a hurry. I will not be in a hurry to believe myself his first object. When I am in company with him, I will not be wishing. In short, I will do my best. Perhaps it will be as well if you discourage his coming here so very often. At least you should not remind your mother of inviting him. <laughs> as I did the other day. <laughs> oh, very true. It will be wise for me to refrain from that. But do not imagine that he is always here so often. It is on your account that he has been so frequently invited this week. You know my mother's ideas as to the necessity of constant company for her friends. <laughs> But really, and upon my honour, I will try to do what I think to be the wisest. And now, I hope, you are satisfied? Her aunt assured her that she was, and Elizabeth, having thanked her for the kindness of her hints, they parted. A wonderful instance of advice being given on such a point without being resented. Mr Collins returned to Hertfordshire soon after it had been quitted by the gardeners and Jane, but... As he took up his abode with the Lucases, his arrival was no great inconvenience to Mrs. Bennet. His marriage was now fast approaching, and she was, at length, so far resigned as to think it inevitable, and even repeatedly to say, in an ill-natured tone, that she wished they might be happy. Thursday was to be the wedding day, and on Wednesday, Miss Lucas paid her farewell visit, and when she rose to take leave, Elizabeth, ashamed of her mother's ungracious and reluctant good wishes, and sincerely affected herself, accompanied her out of the room. As they went downstairs together, Charlotte said, I shall depend on hearing from you very often, Eliza. That, my dear Charlotte, you certainly shall. And I have another favour to ask of you. Will you come and see me? We shall often meet, I hope, in Hertfordshire. I... I am not likely to leave Kent for some time. Promise me, therefore, to come to Hunsford. Elizabeth could not refuse, though she foresaw little pleasure in the visit. 
My father and Mariah are coming to me in March, and I hope you will consent to be of the party. Indeed, Eliza, you will be as welcome as either of them. The wedding took place. The bride and the bridegroom set off for Kent from the church door, and everybody had as much to say or to hear on the subject as usual. Elizabeth soon heard from her friend, and their correspondence was as regular and frequent as it ever had been. That it should be equally unreserved was impossible. Elizabeth could never address her without feeling that the comfort of intimacy was over, and though determined not to slacken as a correspondent, it was for the sake of what had been rather than what was. Charlotte's first letters were received with a good deal of eagerness. There could not but be curiosity to know how she would speak of her new home, how she would like Lady Catherine, and how happy she would dare pronounce herself to be, though, when the letters were read, Elizabeth felt that Charlotte expressed herself on every point exactly as she might have foreseen. She wrote cheerfully, seemed surrounded by comforts, and mentioned nothing which she could not praise. The house, the furniture, the neighbourhood and the roads were all to her taste, and Lady Catherine's behaviour had been most friendly and obliging. It was Mr. Collins's picture of Huntsford and Rosings, rationally softened, and Elizabeth perceived that she must wait for her own visit there to know the rest. Jane had already written a few lines to her sister to announce their safe arrival in London, and when she wrote again, Elizabeth hoped it would be in her power to say something of the Bingleys. Her impatience for this second letter was as well rewarded as impatience generally is. Jane had been a week in town without either seeing or hearing from Caroline. She accounted for it, however, by supposing that her last letter to her friend from Longbourn had by some accident been lost. My aunt is going tomorrow into that part of town, and I shall take the opportunity of calling on Grosvenor Street. She wrote again when the visit was paid, and she had seen Miss Bingley. I did not think Caroline in spirits... But she was very glad to see me and reproached me for giving her no notice of my coming to London. I was right, therefore. My last letter had never reached her. I inquired after their brother, of course. He was well, but so much engaged with Mr. Darcy that they scarcely ever saw him. I found that Miss Darcy was expected to dinner. I wish I could see her. My visit was not long, as Caroline and Mrs. Hurst were going out... I dare say I shall see them soon here. Elizabeth shook her head over the letter. It convinced her that accident only could discover to Mr Bingley her sister's being in town. Four weeks passed and Jane saw nothing of him. She endeavoured to persuade herself that she did not regret it, but she could no longer be blind to Miss Bingley's inattention. After waiting at home every morning for a fortnight and inventing every evening a fresh excuse for her, the visitor did at last appear. But the shortness of her stay, and yet more, the alteration of her manner, would allow Jane to deceive herself no longer. The letter which she wrote on this occasion to her sister will prove what she felt. My dearest Lizzie will, I am sure, be incapable of triumphing in her better judgment at my expense, when I confess myself to have been entirely deceived in Miss Bingley's regard for me. But... My dear sister, though the event has proved you right, do not think me obstinate if I still assert that, considering what her behaviour was, my confidence was as natural as your suspicion. I do not at all comprehend her reason for wishing to be intimate with me. 
But if the same circumstances were to happen again, I am sure I should be deceived again. Caroline did not return my visit till yesterday, and not a note, not a line did I receive in the meantime. When she did come, it was very evident that she had no pleasure in it. She made a slight, formal apology for not calling before, said not a word of wishing to see me again, and was in every respect so altered a creature that when she went away I was perfectly resolved to continue the acquaintance no longer. I pity, though I cannot help blaming her. She was very wrong in singling me out as she did. I can safely say that every advance to intimacy began on her side. But I pity her because she must feel that she has been acting wrong and because I'm very sure that anxiety for her brother is the cause of it. I need not explain myself further, and though we know this anxiety to be quite needless, yet if she feels it, it will easily account for her behaviour to me, and so deservedly dear as he is to his sister, whatever anxiety she must feel on his behalf is natural and amiable. I cannot but wonder, however, at her having such fears now, because if he had at all cared about me, we must have met long ago. He knows of my being in town, I am certain, from something she said herself. And yet it would seem by her manner of talking as if she wanted to persuade herself that he is really partial to Miss Darcy. I, I cannot understand it. If I were not afraid of judging harshly, I should be almost tempted to say that there is a strong appearance of duplicity in all this. But I will endeavour to banish every painful thought and think only of what will make me happy your affection and the invariable kindness of my dear uncle and aunt let me hear from you very soon miss bingley said something of his never returning to netherfield again of giving up the house but not with any certainty we'd better not mention it i'm extremely glad that you have such pleasant accounts from our friends at hunsford Pray, go to see them with Sir William and Maria. I'm sure you will be very comfortable there. Yours, Jane. This letter gave Elizabeth some pain, but her spirits returned as she considered that Jane would no longer be duped, by the sister at least. All expectation from the brother was now absolutely over. She would not even wish for a renewal of his attentions. His character sunk on every review of it, and as a punishment for him, as well as a possible advantage to Jane, she seriously hoped that he might really soon marry Mr. Darcy's sister, as by Wickham's account, she would make him abundantly regret what he had thrown away. Mrs. Gardiner, about this time, reminded Elizabeth of her promise concerning that gentleman, and required information, and Elizabeth had such to send as might rather give contentment to her aunt than to herself. His apparent partiality had subsided. His attentions were over. He was the admirer of someone else. Elizabeth was watchful enough to see it all, but she could see it and write of it without material pain. Her heart had been but slightly touched, and her vanity was satisfied with believing that she would have been his only choice had fortune permitted it. The sudden acquisition of £10,000 was the most remarkable charm of the young lady to whom he was now rendering himself agreeable, 
But Elizabeth, less clear-sighted perhaps in this case than in Charlotte's, did not quarrel with him for his wish of independence. Nothing, on the contrary, could be more natural, and while able to suppose that it cost him a few struggles to relinquish her, she was ready to allow it a wise and desirable measure for both, and could sincerely wish him happy. All this was acknowledged to Mrs. Gardiner, and after relating the circumstances she thus went on, I am now convinced, my dear aunt, that I have never been much in love, for had I really experienced that pure and elevating passion, I should at present detest his very name, and wish him all manner of evil. But my feelings are not only cordial towards him, they are even impartial towards Miss King. I cannot find out that I hate her at all, or that I am in the least unwilling to think of her as a good sort of girl. There can be no love in all this. My watchfulness has been effectual, and though I certainly should be more interesting an object to all of my acquaintances were I madly and distractedly in love with him, I cannot say that I regret my comparative insignificance. Importance may sometimes be purchased too dearly. Kitty and Lydia take his defection much more to heart than I do. They are young in the ways of the world, and not yet open to the mortifying conviction that handsome young men must have something to live on as well as the plain. Chapter 27 With no greater events than these in the Longbourn family, and otherwise diversified by little beyond the walks to Meryton, sometimes dirty and sometimes cold, did January and February pass away. March was to take Elizabeth to Huntsford, she had not at first thought very seriously of going thither, but Charlotte, she soon found, was depending on the plan, and she gradually learned to consider it herself with greater pleasure as well as greater certainty. Absence had increased her desire of seeing Charlotte again, and weakened her disgust of Mr. Collins. There was novelty in the scheme, and, as with such a mother and such uncompanionable sisters, home could not be faultless. A little change was not unwelcome for its own sake. The journey would, moreover, give her a peep at Jane, and in short, as the time drew near, she would have been very sorry for any delay. Everything, however, went on smoothly, and was finally settled according to Charlotte's first sketch. She was to accompany Sir William and his second daughter. The improvement of spending a night in London was added in time, and the plan became perfect as plan could be. The only pain was in leaving her father, who would certainly miss her, and who, when it came to the point, so little liked her going that he told her to write to him and almost promised to answer her letter. Until you and your sister Jane return, I do not expect I shall hear a word of sense in this house. The farewell between herself and Mr Wickham was perfectly friendly, on his side even more. Lizzie! cried Lydia as she returned from a short walk. Do come quick, Lizzie! Mr. Denny has paid us a visit, and you shall be most pleased to know who has accompanied him. The gentleman bowed as the ladies entered. Ah, Miss Elizabeth, Miss Lydia, Miss Catherine, please forgive our intrusion, said Mr. Denny. I could hardly keep my friend away when we heard that you were travelling. He was most anxious that we call on you. Mr. Wickham smiled, joining his friend's good humour. 
After the exchange of pleasantries, Elizabeth suggested a turn about the garden, which Mr. Wickham warmly accepted. His present pursuit could not make him forget that Elizabeth had been the first to excite and to deserve his attention, the first to listen and to pity, the first to be admired. I heard you were for Kent, Miss Elizabeth, and could not allow you to leave without a farewell. I am most glad for your visit. I shall miss our conversations, Mr. Wickham. Well, I wish you every enjoyment. May I assume that your journey shall afford you the opportunity to visit the former Miss Lucas? Yes, it shall. Dear Charlotte, how strange to think of her now as Mrs. Collins. <laughs> you were surprised by the match. Perhaps I hold idealistic notions that even if a marriage is of convenience or comfort, that the parties should at least have the pleasure of good, companionable conversation. A notion I am beholden to as well. In spite of all that we have seen and learned of the world, that convenience and comfort are of an utmost importance in a match. It never ceases to surprise when they are chosen to the detriment of good conversation. Speaking of which, if you find yourself summoned to Rosings during your stay, I would like your particular opinion of the attributes of the conversation therein. Sir, do you perhaps refer to Lady Catherine de Bourgh? The formidable Lady Catherine de Bourgh. I am impressed you have heard of her. Oh, Mr Wickham, you mistake me, sir. This is indeed... The first time I have heard that <laughs> My dear Miss Elizabeth, I shall particularly feel the absence of your good conversation. They walked on. When it came time for the gentleman to leave, Mr Wickham's manner of bidding her adieu possessed a solicitude, an interest, which she felt must ever attach her to him with a most sincere regard and she parted from him, convinced that, whether married or single, he must always be her model of the amiable and pleasing. Her fellow travellers the next day were not of a kind to make her think him less agreeable. Sir William Lucas and his daughter Maria, a good-humoured girl, but tended to being as empty-headed as her father. Oh, Gla, what a delight it shall be to visit Charlotte. Indeed, my dear, much has changed since your sister has married. Oh, yes, for I am now the eldest at home and must be the examples for my siblings. Though, I must say, I shall very much enjoy a reprieve from these responsibilities. Oh, how I long to explore the country and see Charlotte. Oh, Goodness! What a dear little meadow! Do look, Eliza! Just there, out the window! Oh, we have now passed it. What do you think of my bonnet? I made it myself. <laughs> Elizabeth loved the absurdities, but she had known the Lucases too long. They could tell her nothing new of the world, and she passed the time nodding and smiling when prompted. It was a journey of only 24 miles, and they began it as early as to be in Gracechurch Street by noon. As they drove to the gardener's door, Jane was at the drawing-room window waiting their arrival. When they entered the passage, she was there to welcome them. And Elizabeth, looking earnestly in Jane's face, was pleased to see it healthful and lovely as ever. 
At the top of the stairs, there were a troop of little boys and girls whose eagerness for their cousin's appearance would not allow them to wait in the drawing room, and whose shyness, as they had not seen her for a twelvemonth, prevented their coming lower. All was joy and kindness. The day passed most pleasantly away, the morning in bustle and shopping, and the evening at one of the theatres. Elizabeth then contrived to sit by her aunt. Their first object was her sister, and she was more grieved than astonished to hear, in reply to her minute inquiries, that though Jane always struggled to support her spirits, there were periods of dejection. It was reasonable, however, to hope that they should not continue long. Mrs. Gardiner gave her the particulars also of Miss Bingley's visit to Gracechurch Street, and repeated conversations occurring at different times between Jane and herself, which proved that the former had, from her heart, given up the acquaintance. Mrs. Gardiner then rallied her niece on Wickham's desertion, and complimented her on bearing it so well. But my dear Elizabeth, what sort of girl is Miss King? I should be sorry to think our friend mercenary. Pray, my dear aunt, what is the difference in matrimonial affairs between the mercenary and the prudent motive? Where does discretion end and avarice begin? Last Christmas you were afraid of his marrying me because it would be imprudent, and now, because he is trying to get a girl with only £10,000, you want to find out that he is mercenary? If you will only tell me what sort of girl Miss King is, I shall know what to think. <sighs> she is a very good kind of girl, I believe. I know no harm of her. But he paid her not the smallest attention till her grandfather's death made her mistress of this fortune. No. What should he? If it were not allowable of him to gain my affections, because I had no money, what occasion would there be for making love to a girl whom he did not care about and who was equally poor? But there seems an indelicacy in directing his attentions towards her so soon after this event. Oh, um, a man in distressed circumstances has not the time for all those elegant decorums which other people may observe. If she does not object to it, then why should we? Her not objecting does not justify him. It only shows her being deficient in something herself. Sense or feeling. Well, have it as you choose. He shall be mercenary, and she shall be foolish. No, Lizzie. That is what I do not choose. I should be sorry, you know, to think ill of a young man who has lived so long in Derbyshire. Oh, if that is all... I have a very poor opinion of the young men who live in Derbyshire, and their intimate friends who live in Hertfordshire are not much better. I am sick of them all. Thank heaven I am going tomorrow, where I shall find a man who has not one agreeable quality, who has neither manner nor sense to recommend him. Perhaps stupid men are the only ones worth knowing after all. Take care, Lizzie. That speech savours strongly of disappointment. Before they were separated by the conclusion of the play, Elizabeth had the unexpected happiness of an invitation to accompany her uncle and her aunt in a tour of pleasure which they proposed taking in the summer. We have not determined how far it shall carry us, but perhaps to the lakes. No scheme could have been more agreeable to Elizabeth, and her acceptance of the invitation was most ready and grateful. Ah, oh, my dearest aunt... What delight, what felicity. 
You give me fresh life and vigour. Adieu to disappointment and spleen. What are young men to rocks and mountains? Ah, oh, what hours of transport we shall spend. And when we do return, it shall not be like other travellers, without being able to give one accurate idea of anything. We will know where we have gone. We will recollect what we have seen. Lakes, mountains and rivers shall not be jumbled together in our imaginations, nor when we attempt to describe any particular scene will we begin quarrelling about its relative situation. Let our first effusions be less insupportable than those of the generality of travellers. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pride and Prejudice and for another episode of Outro Talking in which I'm feeling a gradual increasing pressure to say something funny or at least mildly amusing. And you know what I find mildly amusing? The fact that so many of you are listening to this podcast and not following us on social media. You should be. Look up Ballarat National Theatre because we've got coming up some uh, Q&As with Olivia French that plays Elizabeth Bennett and the narrator and Leanna Skews, the director and also plays Jane. It's their brainchild is this podcast. So you can ask them heaps of questions. So find Ballarat National Theatre on social media so that you can check out all the behind the scenes and extra stuff. This production is directed by Liana Skews, narrated by Olivia French, and adapted for audio by Elizabeth Bradford, Olivia French, and Liana Skews. This episode features the voices of Olivia French as Elizabeth Bennett, Liz Hardiman as Mrs. Bennett, Ebony McLean as Charlotte Lucas, now Collins, Liana Skews as Jane Bennett, Chris Hiscock as Mr. Bennett, Daisy Kate Kennington as Lydia Bennett, James Waite as Mr. Denny, Elliot Gale as Mr. Wickham, Nick Barker-Pendry as Sir William Lucas, and introducing Ange Kai as Mrs. Gardner and Alana Denham-Preston as Mariah Lucas. This podcast was produced by Ballarat National Theatre on the lands of our traditional custodians, the Wathaurong people. Cast recordings were made in the lands of the Wathaurong, Bidjigal, Wurundjeri, Bunurong, Jarjarwurrung, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung peoples. Ballarat National Theatre acknowledges and pays respect to our traditional custodians and to their past, present and emerging leaders. Is there still music? Have I got music now? Maybe I can be the music. Wait, I don't think that's our music. <laughs>